Today's episode of the Roger Hoover Podcast is available on SoundCloud. It is available on iTunes. You can hit subscribe. Just search for Roger Hoover in the iTunes store. It'll take you right there. And the podcast begins now. Welcome, everybody. This is Roger Hoover. Great to be with you on this Wednesday afternoon, March 16th, 2016. Coming to you from the baseball grounds of Jacksonville here in Jacksonville, Florida, as the field is getting prepared for more high school baseball. It's been fun to have some high school games here this week, and I was able to be the public address announcer and also run the scoreboard, play the music yesterday, and also on Monday, a lot of fun to see some kids get to play at a ballpark. They come to games and support the Suns a lot, but now they actually get to be on the field, and we saw some really good games, especially last night's second game between Terry Parker High and also Sandalwood High School. It's been a busy weekend, of course. I went to Tuscaloosa over the weekend and was able to call three baseball games on SEC Network Plus with Lance Cormier as Houston won a series against Alabama. Really good pitching performances by Andrew Landtrip and Seth Romero of the Houston Cougars on Friday and Saturday. Both of them, I think, will be top 10 draft picks coming up. Landtrip this season and also Seth Romero should be in the 2017 draft, but he was very impressive. Alabama won the last game 8-7 to on Sunday. Will Haney, the catcher for the Tide, had a big home run in the bottom of the eighth inning. That was the difference. So that was a lot of fun to do some Alabama baseball once again. I've got another game coming up next week with Lance Cormier on SEC Network Plus as Alabama takes on Tennessee. So two of the teams I know the best and have done games for this season, Alabama and Tennessee. That'll be my next assignment with them. The Alabama Crimson Tide women's basketball team, a big congratulations to Coach Christy Curry, her staff, and the players as they are back in the postseason for the first time since 2011. Tonight, Alabama playing Tulane in New Orleans in the first round of the women's NIT, and then the winner of that matchup will take on the winner of Georgia Tech against Mercer. Normally, I would be with the Tide in New Orleans and getting ready to broadcast the game on the Crimson Tide Sports Network, but some other plans I've got coming up this weekend will keep me away, and I do want to thank Tim Grubbs, the broadcaster of the New Orleans Zephyrs, the Marlins AAA team. He is going to pinch hit for me tonight for Alabama women's basketball, so certainly thank him and look forward to listening on later tonight, and hopefully Alabama wins and has a long run in the tournament so I can join up with the Tide early next week. But the reason I'm going to miss tonight's Alabama basketball game is because I am going to spring training, and I've gone to spring training and met up with the Miami Marlins for the last few years getting ready for the sun season, but this year will be a little bit different. I am actually going to get to broadcast some Marlins games with Kyle Seeloff, who is the host of Marlins on Deck on the Marlins Radio Network, and he and I are going to team up for three webcasts over this weekend on Marlins.com. The webcast will also be available on the MLB at Bat app on your smartphone, tablet, and also on the computer. Again, Marlins.com and MLB.com. But I've got three games coming up. Tomorrow it's the Marlins and the Mets on St. Patrick's Day, so that should be a good time. And it's going to be a great pitching matchup at Roger Dean Stadium. Jose Fernandez will be on the mound for the Marlins, taking on Jacob deGrom of the New York Mets. So... I don't know if you can get a possibly better matchup than what we're going to see coming up tomorrow as DeGrom is coming back. He It was questionable whether or not he would start, but he will indeed be the starting pitcher tomorrow for the Mets. So you, And then Jose Fernandez is going back for the Marlins. So you have Fernandez, the 2013 Rookie of the Year, opposed by DeGrom, who is the 2014 Rookie of the Year and also is really impressive in the All-Star Game and the World Series last year. So a dream matchup coming up tomorrow and it'll be a lot of fun to call my first Major League innings that will actually be on the air. I've called a spring training game before. I've also done a mock broadcast, mock broadcast in spring training back in 2013. Also did a mock broadcast of a Marlins-Cubs game in 2014, but this is the first time it will be on air and not just for demo purposes. So that's really exciting. Uh, not only the Marlins taking on the Mets tomorrow at Roger Dean Stadium on Friday, no broadcast for me, but I'll be at the Marlins Complex going to the backfields and checking out all the minor league talent that the Marlins have, especially the players that will be coming to Jacksonville. So I'm really looking forward to that, catching up with Suns manager David Berg and the rest of the staff as well. 
Then on Saturday, it's the Marlins and the Tigers from Roger Dean Stadium. And also from Roger Dean Stadium on Sunday, it will be the Marlins against the St. Louis Cardinals to round out my time in Jupiter before I'll head back up Interstate 95 to Jacksonville. So very, very excited about what's coming up. The Marlins spring training, and I get to be a part of it. It's going to be a really good experience, and I really hope everyone can listen in to at least some of the games coming up, and it's going to be a lot of fun to work with Kyle Seeloff. He and I have become pretty good friends over the last few years, and to actually get to call a game together, uh, especially a major league game, will be a lot of fun. Well, today on the podcast, a little different than normal. Don't have a guest that we just recently recorded an interview from, but we're going to take a look back to the archives of the Jacksonville Suns podcast. I had a wonderful conversation last year with Woody Woodward who is a former general manager for the Seattle Mariners, is now a part-time scout in the Mariners organization, but he has had a terrific life in baseball, uh, not just as an executive, but also as a player. He was a player at Florida State, went to the College World Series with the Seminoles, not only as a player, but later on as a coach for Florida State. And then also an outstanding Major League playing career, seeing some time in Milwaukee with the Braves and also Atlanta with the Braves. And also he finished his career with the Cincinnati Reds, got to play in a World Series. Uh, Just a lot of great stories, a lot of great insight on the game. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Woody Woodward. It is an older interview from last May. It was recorded last May uh, during the Sun season and debuted on the Jacksonville Suns podcast. But it's a very good sample of what you can expect to hear later on this year on the Roger Hoover podcast. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Woody Woodward. I was tickled to death when we were able to work out an agreement with the Bragans to put our double-A team here because I knew they would run a nice operation. Uh, I knew it was a good city for our kids to, to play in. And uh, I, I had known the Bragans for years. In fact, Bobby Bragan was my first major league manager in Milwaukee. Jimmy Bragan was the first base coach with the Cincinnati Reds when I was traded there. And then I knew the Bragans here. So I, I knew just about everybody in the family, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the players we got to see during that time, uh, Alex Rodriguez, I mean, just a lot of what the late 90s Marin- and mid-90s, late 90s Mariners teams, a lot of that was built here in this city. It was. And <clears throat> what was disappointing to me, uh, we did have some wonderful ball players. In fact, we uh, Randy Johnson played here, I believe, but not mm-hmm. as a Mariner. He was an com- expo. He was coming through the expo system, but uh, Brett Boone was here. Uh, my goodness, there were some um, some good ball players. We could never could get the championship mixed together, though, for Jacksonville. We we tried. We had a, a nice club here. Some good talent. Guys went on and played in the big leagues, but didn't quite uh, get the job done as far as a championship. Well, let's talk a little more about your background. Uh, going back, uh, of course, born from Miami, is that right? That's correct. And in, in Miami, that was a, a time when it was an entirely different uh, city. It wasn't a major league city. It wasn't the international flair that it has now, but it was a wonderful place. If you were a, a, a young man growing up and you liked baseball, it was a good place to, to be. And for you, you went to Coral Gables High School, is that correct? Coral Gables High School, and we won a state championship in my uh, senior year. Uh, it is the only state championship Gables has had. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Gables has had some wonderful uh, players. Eli Morero has had a nice career. He's now managing in the Reds minor league system, and um, Mike Lowell, from that program so we, we've had some nice representation but uh, only one state championship so you won a state championship did you have any professional looks any teams that were trying to sign you out of high school before you went to Florida State no and that was a big disappointment because there was not a draft at that time okay we're talking about a long time ago here, right. 1960 <laughs> and <clears throat> I was all set to go to uh, to Florida State but I, I just knew somebody would be knocking on my door at graduation night, but it, it didn't happen. And 
the reports that I read said Woodward has some talent, but he needs to go to college, get a little bigger, a little stronger, and then we'll take a look at him in the future. And that's ex- exactly what happened, but it was a little bit of a disappointment uh, in that senior year for me. And what was it like going to Florida State? College baseball has changed a lot since then, but what, talk about the early 1960s and playing mm-hmm. the college game. Well, if you look at the late 50s and the early 60s, uh, this may surprise some of your listeners, but the, the big college programs in the southeast were Florida State, Rollins, and Stetson. That's what everybody thought of. They didn't think of the Gators. Uh, sorry to my Gator fans, but it's, <laughs> it's a fact. Or to the Hurricanes. The Hurricanes just barely had a program at that time. Uh, <clears throat> but Florida State was, was on the map because of a coach by the name of Danny Littweiler. Danny played for the Cardinals uh, for a number of years, played on a couple of world championship teams, and, and he was just, he. I had never seen anything like him when it came to coaching. At that age, here was a man that could come in and take every position on the field in a clinic and teach kids things to do, not to do, and... Uh, once I had been around him for a little while, I said, this is where I want to go to college. And I, and I actually had a scholarship offered to the University of Florida and to Clemson. And I told my dad, I said, after meeting Coach Littweiler, I said, I'd like to go to F- Florida State. <clears throat> we did not have a lot of money in, in those years, but my dad made it work. In other words, he said, that's okay. If Florida State's the choice, let's do it. And I, I did not receive a partial scholarship until uh, my sophomore year and then a full scholarship my junior year. But uh, uh, it, it was quite an experience. This man knew the game. He taught you uh, what it was like to be a professional. And uh, I haven't met too many college coaches like him uh, since. Uh, but you're right, it's a, if it's a different game now in the colleges, uh, here we're seeing teams on TV, we're, we're getting all type of coverage on the number of prospects, and we're starting to know and <clears throat> learn about players uh, that uh, otherwise, back in the 60s, you wouldn't know about till they got to the big leagues. Now we're knowing the names when they're coming out of high school and into college. So it, it's a different um, different ball game altogether. Was there a point in your time at Florida State where you started to notice more and more scouts were taking a look at you? Uh, actually, it happened uh, my first year at Florida State. Now, you go back to that that era and remember football, basketball, baseball, it did not matter. If you were a freshman, you could not play varsity. I don't know that I could have played varsity. Mm -hmm. I probably could have defensively, but maybe not offensively as a freshman. But um, they had the freshman rule in, and you can think of some some wonderful uh, athletes in all the sports that had to go through freshman ball, you know, and it's... uh, uh, now we now the freshmen if they're good enough they step in and they play for day for day one but um, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it, it it's quite a change in a lot of uh, a lot of aspects and also some change uh, you mentioned how college baseball didn't get a lot of attention in those days but still the college world series did it have a certain feel to it you got to play there with Florida State I I played there two years my um, sophomore and junior year we finished fourth one year and fifth one year and I'm glad you brought that up because even back in the 60s uh, Omaha was something special you felt like you were going to the ends of the earth going out to Omaha to play baseball but let me tell you when you arrived it was a triple-a ballpark at that time so they took good care of the field a big following the entire city and surrounding area would turn out uh, and each area of the city was assigned like one area was assigned 
Florida State. Turn out and cheer for Florida State. <laughs> Another community had University of Florida, and it, and and it it had a nice feel to it, and that's where the um, the groundwork for what we know as the College World Series today. That's where it all started, and you have to give a lot of credit to uh, to Omaha. Jumping ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. you of course went back to Florida State to serve as head coach for a little bit and returned to Omaha mm-hmm. with the Seminoles. I mean, was it big changes from the early '60s to the late 1970s when you came back as a coach? Uh, I I wouldn't say there was a lot of that I could see a big change or a lot of changes. Uh, the one thing was that big ballpark all of a sudden got a lot smaller <laughs> because of the aluminum bats. In fact, my first year coaching at Florida State in 75 uh, was the year that aluminum bats came into the uh, picture. And that made a a huge difference in how the game was played. Uh, So other than that, the city still supported the College World Series. I do not recall ball games being on television. Uh, Maybe they were. But there was all of a sudden, uh, it seemed like all of a sudden there was a, a, a feeling around the country when it was College World Series time, more people knew about it, not just the people in Nebraska, but all around the country. <laughs> and I'm sure and as an alum of that program, uh, mm-hmm. getting to go there to Omaha as a player to take a team back as a head coach mm-hmm. to Rosenblatt Stadium, that must have been one of the most fulfilling experiences of your whole career. It, it was special for me. And... Uh, and one thing I, I was pleased to see firsthand was as soon as we arrived in Omaha, before we even checked into the hotel, I had the bus driver take us out to the Rosenblatt Stadium, let the guys walk in there and just get a, a feel for what they were going to be taking part in. And um, to, to, to see the reactions on you know the expressions on their faces and how they responded uh, made me feel good I thought well this is just as special to these young men as it was to my college group so uh, and I would say to any baseball fan even here in Jacksonville this far away if you get the opportunity to go to Omaha spend a couple days and watch some of the ball games. Maybe you don't even have a favorite team there, but just to experience uh, the the whole atmosphere, it's well worth it. And is that where you played your last college game, Rosenblatt Stadium? Uh, well, yes, it yes it is because my um, uh, junior year, I um, finished up at the College World Series. Went right back. We flew back home. Got in the car in Tallahassee, drove down to Miami, and there was a Milwaukee Brave Scout sitting there at the house waiting for me. So that that was the last college game, and before I knew it, I was into this world <laughs> of pro baseball, Roger. And it was um, it, I was prepared for it because of Coach Letwiler, but. Um, it, w- it was certainly an adjustment. Now, we mentioned that college baseball has changed a lot, but also minor league baseball from back in the early 1960s to where we are now has changed mm-hmm. a lot. And for you, were you assigned first to AAA right out of college? I did. I went right from I – w- I was afraid you were going to ask me about minor <laughs> league baseball back then because I can't help you. I, right, you didn't play much there. I didn't play much. <laughs> I, I, I went from assigning the contract – Flying up to Milwaukee, spent three days working out with the big club while they were at home. After that third day working out, then I I uh, flew to um, uh, Denver. It was our the Denver Bears. That was our AAA team, and you'll recognize this name. Uh, flying from the Milwaukee Braves, he was being optioned down to Denver. Was uh, Bob Euchre. How about that? Yeah, and he yeah. He, he kept things interesting. <laughs> I, I can assure you, when he was on a ball club, he kept everybody loose. What a, he was a he was a good ball player. Uh, he, he talks about his game like he was at the bottom of the rung, but he wasn't. He was a good catcher, good teammate, and uh, 
and always a lot of fun. Always certainly entertaining. <laughs> so for you, just that whole experience of getting to go to AAA, and then after that, of course, the majors, was that really rare at the time? It was. It was, uh, and I, I think it still is right. pretty rare. Um, and I had to adjust quickly. as going from college baseball right at one step below the big leagues. Uh, there was a lot of learning to do and to do it quickly because I didn't want to be sent down lower. I liked the idea of starting <laughs> at AAA sure. and, and I wanted to move ahead and then I was called up at the end of the season and uh, so I played in my first big league game when I was 20 years old. So uh, that, like I said, there was a lot of learning in a short period of time and then I found out quickly the things that I could do that I could compete in the big leagues and I found the things that I needed work on and uh, and then from that step forward just like these young men here with the Suns and the uh, Mississippi Braves if they're fortunate enough to get to the big leagues they're gonna find that it's it's always adjusting you get on a roll and you figure hey I've got this game figured out well the guys in the other dugout now we're going to make adjustments to to get you out find out what you can do as a catcher what you can do as a shortstop and you better then adjust yourself or because it's 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 continual unless you're one of the um, superstars like a Henry Aaron or Willie Mays or Johnny Bench or you know unless you're that type of player where you can play at such a level that uh, you don't really make too many adjustments. Those guys, it seemed to me, they had so much talent that they, that if they just played their game, they could compete against anybody. But the rest of us, the rest of the world, <laughs> us <laughs> mortals, yeah, us mortals, we we had to adjust and keep adjusting in in order to contribute. You mentioned getting the call to the Milwaukee Braves. Do you remember where you were when you found out you were going to the big leagues, and what was that first day in the major leagues like? Well, I I, I really don't. I, I I know we finished up the our game at Denver, our final game, uh, and I was called into the manager's office, and he told me uh, that I was going up, and I believe I was the only player. Well, I know I was the only player from the AAA team to, to be called up. There may have been somebody else from AA, but I, I don't recall. And the reason I say that is because I was told to catch such and such flight into Cincinnati. You're meeting the, the Braves there for a short series. And so I go to the airport and I fly in, and when we land, they say we're landing at... Uh, Kentucky International Airport, and I said, oh, my God, I got on the wrong flight. <laughs> and and uh, not knowing at that at that point that the airport for Cincinnati and uh, that part of Ohio and that part of Kentucky was in Kentucky, so I was okay. But I had I had a little scare for the moment, but I, I got to the ballpark, and um, it, it, it was a feeling that, one, I was happy to be there. Two, I didn't belong. I'm just watching these players that I'd always read about and, and heard broadcast and, and the, these greats. And I'm, I'm saying, I, I, I shouldn't be here. And in my, my first at-bat, there was a, a pitcher for Cincinnati that does not receive enough um, credit for his career, Jim Maloney. You'll have to check for me. He, he, I know he had one no hitter, maybe maybe two no hitters. One of the hardest throwers that 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 I have ever seen in, in any era. And he was pitching for Cincinnati, and I was not playing that night. But um, he was just going right through our lineup like it was nothing. <laughs> and, and I'm watching this, and I'm saying. You know this this can't be what hitters face every every night and they got to the uh, ninth inning and the manager Bobby Bragan said Woodward get a bat <laughs> and I went oh 
I don't really want to go up there and <laughs> against this guy. So I go out in the on-deck circle, and I'm watching Maloney from now even closer. And that ball looks to me like it's 105 miles an hour. So I stepped up there, and I figured, well, I'm not waiting. You know, if I get something close, I'm hacking because I, I can't afford to give up a strike here. I'm going to need them all. And the first pitch was a fastball, and I and I – Got around on it, hit a line shot between third and short. It took one hop, and I thought, I've got a base hit off Maloney, and I'm going to first. And Leo Cardenas was the shortstop for Cincinnati. He backhanded the ball, set, and threw just a, a rifle shot to first base, threw me out by three steps, and then I'm going to the dugout. I said, now I know I don't belong up here. If these guys throw like this and they make plays like in the, in the minor leagues, that ball's into the hole and base hit, and here we go. But um, so it, it was it was a wonderful time, but it was also a scary time for a 20 year old kid. And but you know that's what all these kids go through. Mm-hmm. And then they you're there a few days, and you get a, another at bat. You get a few ground balls in a game. You relax. And then you, I think the express, expression that you announcers like to use is the game slows down. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's a good description because when you first get there, everything looks so fast. And just something as simple as running the bases, you're a little nervous. But then you relax, game slows down, you play your game. And um, so when you're watching these, these young men at, at AA, they're making adjustments they're learning to play the game they're learning to develop their skills because they have to do that to get to the big leagues and know what they can do and then they see how they have to adjust to stay in the big leagues and uh, if you don't get that training here you're just not going to be able to make the adjustments at the the big leagues so that's part of the process it's um, that's a long ways to answer your question. I was tickled <laughs> to death to be there, but I was a little afraid also. <laughs> and one of the teammates that you had uh, mm-hmm. with the Braves, you mentioned uh, Henry Aaron, of course, mm-hmm. played in Jacksonville as well. He integrated the South Atlantic League. What was he like as a teammate? Well, <clears throat> not only Henry, but but I had teammates like Eddie Matthews. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Warren Spahn was still there. Uh, and for me... All the great pitchers the Braves have had in that organization, Warren is probably the best. Sometime take a look at his record. I, I believe he had something like 10 to 12 20 game seasons. Right. I mean, that's, that's just unbelievable. It's one of the best there's been, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it was, it was a, a veteran club when I got there, uh, and they, they were all good good players to learn from and and Henry may have been the best Uh, he and I always had a nice relationship in fact when we the team moved to Atlanta uh, our lockers were next to each other but uh, so I I did get to know Henry a little bit and just I still admire him today for what he's done off the field and certainly what he's done on the field Uh, he he was uh, he he's remembered for the home runs and that's great but it's also a little unfortunate because this man could do everything he could run balls down in the outfield he had a good arm he could uh, steal bases he didn't steal a lot but he didn't get thrown out very many times if you needed a, a base stolen in the seventh eighth ninth inning he got on he stole the base it was that he didn't maybe steal many in the first second third inning he used that speed late in the game uh but he he was a wonderful teammate Uh, actually pretty quiet uh but he loved to joke around and and uh and, and if you uh if he thought that you were serious about your game and were going about it in a professional manner he was always available to, to answer questions. He might not go up to the young players. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of the veterans were like that years ago. You had to show that 
you, when you came in, you had to show that you could do something to help that club win, and that you belong. And once you did, you were taken in like a like a teammate, and and all right, now we're <clears throat> we're working together. Nowadays, you don't see that. Nowadays, guys come up, and there's an effort to make them feel at home right away. It's just a little different approach back there. You had to you had to show that you belonged first. But uh, Henry Aaron, to answer your question, was I think he's the best ball player that 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 I've ever seen. I've heard the the discussion who is better, Aaron or Mays. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that's not a bad. If you're in that <laughs> top two, sure, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I I I lean to Henry Aaron because he was my teammate and I could see what he did on a daily basis but they were both fabulous players in any era no doubt and you mentioned the transition from milwaukee to atlanta was that something you liked being from the state of florida being a little bit closer to home well it it was when um when we went to atlanta uh i liked milwaukee uh it was a a town that um certainly love baseball always has and and welcome the players but uh when we heard we were moving to atlanta for me i was getting close to home and and i was excited about it i i wasn't sure what to expect but (laughs) uh i thought well this can't be all bad so i look forward to that that switch and uh atlanta has proven to be a good a professional city all the sports so and you also not only signed with the milwaukee braves atlanta braves went to the cincinnati reds Mm -hmm. just as they were starting to build up and become the team that was really dominant in the Mm -hmm. 1970s especially in the national league and you also were a part of the 1970 national Mm -hmm. league champ so what was Mm -hmm. your time like in cincinnati and getting to see so many of the young players that Mm -hmm. formed the foundation for the big red machine uh, in their early years well it it's it brings up a point about being traded yeah <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a very strange feeling when you go through it the first time and we were at home in Atlanta and one of the coaches came out and and went up to to Clay Carroll a reliever Tony Kleininger one of our starters our best starter and myself said the manager wants to see you in his office this is during batting practice. Oh, well, this can't be good. You know, <laughs> what? You, you don't get called into the manager's office very often. So we went up and we were told, um, uh, I think it was Lumen Harris was the manager, that their trade had been made it was with Cincinnati, but he would not tell us the players, all the players involved. It was th- six players, three going each way. And but what they did tell us, and now this is another part where the games changed. Now players have three days to report. Well, <clears throat> we didn't have that luxury back then. We were told this is what about five o'clock for a night game that we were expected to be at Wrigley uh, in Chicago to play a game in Wrigley Field the next day. We were joining the Reds in Chicago. So you go, you go home, you first you, you call, you tell your wife, hey, this is what's happened. Right. I've got to leave tomorrow. And, uh, and, and the wives are left on their own to get things packed up and get to the new city. And we're moving on. We fly into Chicago and uh, you still have that feeling least I did and I uh, other players have told me the same thing that first time you feel like geez nobody wants me you know this team's getting rid of me oh what you fail to look at is the fact somebody wants you and they have uh, plans for you and but once I arrived the 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 uh, uh, the manager and the coaches uh, made us feel welcome and at that time, Jimmy Bregan mm-hmm. was the first base coach. See, so <laughs> another Bregan connection. There's there's that second one. There's Jimmy, uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so we get to the hotel. We get out of the cab. The, the bus is there to take the team to Wrigley. 
So they said, well, send your bags upstairs, get on the bus that quickly. We're Cincinnati Reds. And uh, I'll never forget that bus ride to Wrigley. It take, takes about um, 20 minutes to get down to the ballpark. And Pete Rose was standing in the front of the bus. If, if, if they had let him, he, he would drive the bus. I, just, <laughs> I, I know this. But he would stand down in the little stairwell. And he was talking and didn't stop the whole time. He's talking about who's pitching for the Cubs. He's talking about this and that. At any time, Pete could tell you who the pitchers were going to be that you were going to face for the next five days. That's incredible. It, it is. I mean, I mean <laughs> one of the better baseball minds you've been around? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and a street smart. Uh, street smart. Boy, he knew how to compete. Roger, he was may have been about the best I've ever been around in that department and he could be around the batting cage and a guy like me I was there because of defense mm-hmm. that was my game so I wasn't going to hit a lot of home runs I never I didn't and you I had had, one I had one <laughs> and and um, I tell people that was a misprint there's actually a zero there's 10 I had 10 but, <laughs> but it was one but uh, so I'd get in a cage in BP, and I may try to muscle up and hit one out of the park. And this voice behind the cage would say, "What are you doing? That's not your game. Hit line drives. Hit it to right field. Hit it to left field." So he was—he was like having another hitting coach on the team. Ted Klazuski was our hitting coach uh, at that time, but but Pete watched every hitter. And uh, he, he knew the hitting. He knew the pitchers. That's what he really knew. He studied the pitching. But um, getting to that ballpark and having the Reds uniform on, I, I had been number 14 with the Braves. Well, what's Pete's number? 14. 14. Yeah. So I go to my locker, and I see Woodward in the back of the uniform, the Cincinnati Grays, and it's number 6. And, and then I hear, I hear this guy come up behind me, taps me in the shoulder. He said, you see who's still wearing 14, don't you? And I, <laughs> I, I said, yes, Pete, and you deserve it. I wasn't expecting 14. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy with number six. And so six stayed with me there. It stayed with me in coaching in college, so that was fine. But um, it, it, it was his way of letting you know you belonged and um, it was about a week later that Pete came over to me and said, said Woody, he said, uh, the players have been talking, and their player rep at that time was a pitcher named Milt Pappas. Mm-hmm. He went in the trade to the Braves. Right. So Pete said, we, we know that you were the alternate player rep uh, with the Braves. We would like you to, to be our player rep. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'd be, Pete, I'd be happy to. And uh, so all of a sudden I felt like I, I belonged. I was a Red. I was Cincinnati Reds now. The Braves was in the past, and now it was see what kind of ball club this could be. And it turned out to be one whale of a ball club. There were some good players Absolutely. there. They had Bench, Tony Perez, my goodness, Tony Cloninger. Yeah, Pete Rose, I mean, Lee May, uh, the, uh, then David Concepcion came along. Uh, they were just a solid ball club. So another good a good uh, club to be a part of. But um, that's my trade experience, Roger. It went from being doom and gloom to being one of the happiest guys in the game. Is that something you thought back about when you were a general manager in the major leagues oh, making yes. trades? A- absolutely. And and. Uh, tried my best in in making deals, even though sometimes players weren't going to like it. You wanted to be very honest with them and tell them why the trade was made, and, uh, and most of them appreciated that. Because uh, you hear some stories where players find out by hearing it on the radio mm-hmm. or reading it in paper. Now it might be on the computer. I wanted to make sure that things were taken care of uh, in a meeting, face-to-face, 
if I wasn't there, then the manager was going to do it. And, uh, and, and you're exactly right. That came from that experience of mine of knowing what being traded was all about. In your time with the Reds, uh, winning the 1970 National mm-hmm. League uh, pennants, uh, what do you remember from that NLCS? And then as a baseball man, you work your whole life for an opportunity to be a part of a World Series. Mm-hmm. What was 1970 like for you? Uh, it was a loss for the Reds to the Orioles, but just getting to be there and uh, getting to play in World Series games. Well, it it, uh, it, it was truly uh, my <coughs> best memory in the game. Uh to be called out in the starting lineup, lineup on first base, opening game in Riverfront Stadium, and the place is packed, and and you know there are cameras everywhere, uh, so you better not mess up. <laughs> 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 uh, and uh, so it, there's there's a lot of pressure, but there's a lot of excitement in the entire city uh, would turn out, and it's it's uh, the World Series is only grown from there it's only gone up it gets bigger and bigger and more people are watching it and um, uh, but in saying that I'd also tell you going back to those college days Mm -hmm. that college world series was a pretty nice experience too I put it up close to the to the to the world series uh, because that's what you strive for to get there and then then to try to come out on top And then in 1975, I was working for the Reds in the front office, and and, uh, we got into the series and won it all. So uh, that, that, like you said, that's that's what you're in the game for. And uh, when it happens, your best bet is to just enjoy it and do your darndest to try to win it. We ran up against a very good ball club Mm -hmm. in, in Baltimore Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson, and uh, <clears throat> that that was a Boog Powell. That was a solid great club. pitching staff. Oh, oh. They, <laughs> they, they had they they had r- remarkable pitching. It's a left-handers, right-handers, bullpen. They kept th- every arm they brought out there looked pretty good. And also another incident in your playing career that was a little different. It was just a regular game against the Dodgers at Dodgers Stadium, and you look up to the sky, something was coming at you. Well, I didn't look up. Oh, you didn't look up? I didn't look up. (laughs) But it was a night game, and it was in Dodgers Stadium. Uh, Maury Wills, great base stealer, was uh, on second base. Tommy Helms was our second baseman. I was a shortstop. Tony Perez was at third. And it's probably good that Maury, a good thing that Maury was the base runner because I was shifting over towards the bag to keep Maury close. You had, he would steal. It didn't matter the score of the game, how many outs he would run. So we were holding him close. And remember, it's a night game. And if you think about it, when you look up in the sky, at, you're at a ballpark, you can't see what's above the lights. Mm-hmm. You can't because all the lights are shining down right. on the field, so you can't see anything above there. But all of a sudden, there's a, a white streak that comes down, and it's between Tony Perez and myself, and it hits the dirt of the infield, and it explodes, and and there's white dust everywhere. It was a bag of flour, <laughs> and evidently there was some. I won't use the the descriptive word I'd like to use that was in a plane, a private plane, flying over. Thought it'd be funny to drop this bag of flour on. And if you imagine if it hit anybody, uh, absolutely, it, yeah, it would yeah. have been horrific. Uh, if it landed in the stands, it could have wiped out two or three people. But uh, it was a bag of flour. It hit. It exploded. And it's just scared the daylights out of all of us <laughs> in the in the area. Sure, the grounds crew got it creeped up. Was there any type of delay just to kind of clean well, it up? Well, there yeah. was a delay to clean it up, and then they they were trying to determine. I'm told later, uh, where did it come from? And uh, now this surprises me because they they made a decision. They being the Dodgers, that they were not going to publicize it because they didn't want to give somebody else the same idea. 
Whereas if that had happened today, who would you have? CNN, you would have social all media would have been all over media, it. Yeah, you'd have. You know, it. Think about it. it <laughs> they would have had a field day with that. But anyway, yeah, that that was uh, that was quite an experience. Not one that you really want to have. But uh, uh, looking back, thank goodness uh, there wasn't anybody injured. And um, uh, I get asked about it quite often. I'm sure. Sometimes I'm sitting in the stand scouting, and somebody will come over and say. Tell me about the bag of flour. <laughs> so it's received a lot of uh, notice. Now, that happened in September 1971. That was your last season, is that right? That was my last season, and and uh, the, the Cincinnati Reds, in the past, I don't know if they still do it, but you know how they put a big message up on the board this day in mm-hmm. baseball history? Well, they've put that up several times, and they'll say, it's interesting to note that a few days after this instant uh, incident, Woodward retired. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, I had nothing to do with the bag right. of flour, re, my retiring. But what went into your decision to retire? Well, <clears throat> I tell people if if they had been paying us the salaries back then mm-hmm. that players are receiving now, I would never have left the game. I was 29 years old, played my first game, right, at 20. Right. So now Nine-year career. Yeah, I've, I've still got some good years left. But back then, uh, players looked at baseball as, as a wonderful career and something you always want to do, but we also looked at it as a means to an end, that it would open doors because we knew when we, our playing days were over, we still had years that we had to be productive so what are you going to do? And so I had an opportunity to go with a land development and management company in Tallahassee, and I, I chose to do that because I was going to be making the same money or a little more, a little better than I was making in the big leagues. And, you know, nowadays that doesn't happen. No. It doesn't happen. And, and, and I would say to you that um, – that would be the biggest change in the if you look at the entire game of baseball that's the biggest change i've seen over the years is the the uh, free agency and arbitration it allows players to move it makes it competitive salaries go up arbitration sends salaries up that's been the biggest change in the game. If you go back into the 40s and the 50s, uh, in the 60s, there there was no free agency, mm-hmm. right? Right. There was no free agency. So um, uh, players would get stymied in an organization. Let's say you were the right fielder for the Marlins right now in the minor leagues. Things aren't looking too good for you, are they? <laughs> no. That was Giancarlo in Miami locked to a big deal. That's right. Yep. And and you were stuck. And you look at teams like the Cardinals and the Dodgers. They had huge farm systems. They had 10, 12, 13 minor league teams. And these players would get backed up at positions, particularly if they, it was a good ball club at the major league level. There was no minor league free agency. Now there's a six-year rule where the players mm-hmm. can move. So <clears throat> when when free agency came in, then arbitration, minor league free agency, it allowed players to move. They could choose where they were going. And there was competition uh, <clears throat> to, to sign these players. So it, we didn't have that years ago. We were, we were with an organization. You were there until they decided to, to let you go or to trade you. So transitioning now from your time as a player to time in the front mm-hmm. office, uh, you had a little bit of time as a television commentator. Is that <laughs> right? Before coaching at FSU and uh, working for the Reds again? Two years. Okay. And I found out what a difficult job you have. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't very good at it, but I had a blast for two years. Yeah. I, I worked with... Um, Charlie Jones, a wonderful announcer with the NFL. He did, oh my goodness, oh, oh, you could speak to this. Announcers, when they're coming through the system, do 
they 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 do so many different things yeah broad, anything you can do to broaden your career yeah. get the experience and charlie was one of the best in the nfl and then uh, ken coleman who had been an announcer with the red sox so i had two true professionals and they they guided me through for two years and uh in fact the first year and charlie jones when we met in spring training uh he said i'll make a deal with you he said i'll i'll help you through this i'll guide you through it if you teach me baseball and that was the way it worked you know and he, he didn't really know the game but he wanted to learn and he knew i needed help being the color guy so yeah that was an experience i, I really after those two years i i really have a, a had a new respect for the guys that 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 do this job how difficult it is particularly when your team's not winning <laughs> we're seeing that a little bit in jacksonville yes, you are. Yeah. It, it, it's 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 a test every night to um, to keep it interesting and um it's a lot more fun when you're winning ball games and everybody is coming out and it's a great time but um so it's a tough business you you've chosen and i was in it two years and i said that's probably all i should be <laughs> i should move into something else so i got back onto the field and from there <clears throat> worked my way into the front office as assistant gm in cincinnati and then and then the the yankees and george steinbrenner wanted to talk to me and uh, i'd always said i'd i'd never live in new york didn't want any part of new york <laughs> but um talked to mr steinbrenner and and he convinced me i should join the yankees in the front office and uh, uh, that that was a big step because that put me in the big market the, the biggest the biggest market, you can get in yeah and he, and it put me in a compensation bracket that that i hadn't experienced because <laughs> it was new york and i had a chance to uh to to work on uh, my my um uh talents is in in the um, gm's office uh my general manager was clyde king had pitched for the the dodgers had been with the yankees for a long time and he was at an age where he didn't want to fool with uh, the basic agreement that's the agreement between the owners and the players association well that was a natural for me because mm -hmm. i'd already been on the players right. side so i learned that agreement handled contracts handled um, scouting and uh, player development they reported to me so I, then i was kind of off and running in the front office and uh and then from there went on to uh, 12 years as a GM in Seattle. And now I'm sitting here talking to Roger. That's right. <laughs> well, you mentioned that time in the late 80s, yeah. time with the Yankees, Phillies as well, and then uh, one year the Mariners? With, one year with Philly and then off to Seattle and, and took the GM job there. Yeah, we don't see movement like that very much among general managers. What was that period like for you? Uh, there, there may be there may be more movement than than you realize you you only see um you're probably talking about general managers mm -hmm. uh once someone's in that general manager seat yes there's some stability there you right. hope there's stability because it th then you have something that you can build on with an organization when you get too much movement in the manager in the dugout or the general manager then there's constant change and that's not always good when you're trying to build put an organization together but there are, there is movement between uh, front offices individuals wanting to get in get experience and then they move to another club so there's movement there uh, but then we had some nice clubs in seattle we had very mm -hmm. competitive clubs and and so I was there 12 years, and then after 12 years, I was, I was worn out. Yeah. It's, it's, I tell people it's a 13-month-a-year uh, job. You know, there, there is no downtime. There's no downtime. And I think the downtime's even less now than when I was there. These guys with the, 
with the phones and the texting and the computers. You're always available. Um, we always used to like it when Mr. Steinbrenner would get on the plane, his private plane, fly from Tampa to New York, because we knew for a couple hours we had some freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Was he as hands-on as people are led to believe? Yeah. I think that's if you if you open up the dictionary and look for a hands-on. <laughs> I think there's Mr. Steinbrenner's picture there. That's he was the man and and controlled it totally. Well, you mentioned going to the Seattle Mariners. Mm-hmm. Uh, they already had King Griffey Jr. in the system when you got there. Is that true? He was in the uh, minor league system, correct? And then you had the special opportunity once he was in the major leagues to help bring his father and have father and son play yeah. together on the same team. How'd that come about? Well. <clears throat> uh, Cincinnati contacted me and, and said they were going to do something with Senior. And I, I knew Senior from my days in the front office in Cincinnati. So he was mm-hmm. a good ball player there. Uh, then when I was with the Yankees, he was with the Yankees. So I knew his ability, and I knew the, the, the type of man that we were dealing with. This was a perfect man to have in a clubhouse to teach young, young players. And then I'm thinking, well, you know, father, son, this has never been done. It may never be done again. And we've got this opportunity. So we made some type of deal. I don't even recall what was involved. And he came over, and I received a call from Dr. Uh, Bobby Brown. And uh, he said, he was the president of the league, he said, Woody, I hope this is not a, just a dog and pony show. I hope this is good for the game. I said, this will be good for the game. Because these, these two men can play the game. I had to chuckle when he asked me that. I guess, and he knew the answer. He knew it was fine, but I think he figured he probably had to cover his bases. Sure, yeah. You know, that people wouldn't say, what are you bringing someone's dad in to play? <laughs> well, they went on and, and were quite a... Uh, a, a pair in our lineup and there was one game where they hit back-to-back home runs mm-hmm. and uh, and then when his playing days were over then I kept senior in the in the organization to work the young the young players liked Ken Griffey senior they would listen to him and it's interesting that juniors the same way when junior goes around to the minor leagues these kids just they they eat up everything he has to tell them you know he's they're good teachers they they've got the attention of the players and you need to have that if 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 you're going if you're going to teach you need their attention and and so it was a a win-win um when they were playing and also uh, when when his father went into uh, helping us coach well, the Mariners, so many good teams. Your time there as general manager. Uh, but one really stands out more than mm-hmm. any other, 1995. And um, not only just the dramatic run they had to make it to the mm-hmm. postseason, winning in the postseason, but at the time, wasn't there also rumors that maybe the Mariners would leave Seattle? I mean, that made it a very interesting backdrop for a dramatic run in baseball. It, it's true. The, there was a gentleman in the radio business from Indianapolis. He was our owner, and he called me aside and told me what he was doing. He was speaking to uh, St. Pete, Florida, and that, that, that the team may move to Florida. And I'm sitting there. He really knocked me out of my chair with that comment. And I'm thinking, but I love Seattle. Mm-hmm. I really like Seattle. My wife's still mad at me because I left Seattle. She really liked it. <laughs> and, but then I'm thinking, Florida, that's home. Right. And you know, I can't lose in this deal either way. From either, Miami, yeah. Tallahassee connection. Yeah. So, so uh, it, it's it's a fascinating story that uh, how how this all came down because he thought the club was going to be put up for sale and that there was not going to be any takers. They knew that Bill Gates did not have interest. Uh, they knew the other money in the city had no interest so they figured it was going to be they were going to walk right on down to florida well it didn't happen that way uh seattle was doing a lot of behind the scenes work and they got nintendo involved 
Mr. Yamauchi from Japan stepped in and put up a major part of the money to keep the team in Seattle because that was the home of Nintendo. Mm -hmm. So that's why he he helped out. And um, but yeah, that was an interesting time. And that team of '95 had a lot to do, as you point out, with the team staying there because. You know, Seattle at that time was either number one or number two in in sales around baseball. It was the Yankees and the Mariners. I don't remember which was one and which was two, mm-hmm. but we, we were the two biggest sellers of merchandise. There was that much interest around the country, not just in Seattle and the Northwest. And uh, but the, when you put a lineup out there that has Randy Johnson on the mound and Griffey in center, uh, you know, and then you go <laughs> Edgar Martinez, DH, and Jay Buner in right, and you just keep going around Dan Wilson behind the plate. That was an exciting ball club, and and you just you were anxious for the seven o'clock to get there so you could go sit in your seat and watch, see what they were going to do that night, and. Uh, it was it, it was a good time in Seattle. Uh, I've had some down times since then, but I, I I think the new man Jack Zarensic now I think he's got the team moving in the right direction. And um, but uh, <clears throat> I can't think of too many disappointments I've had, Roger, in yeah. all the years. It's it's been a great ride. It's been over fifty years. And the only bad part of that is I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> well, even now you're still yeah. part of the game as we start right. to wrap things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take a look at several different organizations to help out uh, mm-hmm. the Mariners. How did that opportunity come about? Well, <clears throat> Jack Zarensic, uh, I, I was actually part of my final contract called for me staying for three years after I stepped down from the GM's position and that I did some scouting, but I was available to help in any way. Well, we had Pat Gillick come in as general manager, and I think he's just as good as any general manager Mm -hmm. that's ever been in the game. So it was a pleasure working with Pat for three years. And then when Jack Zarensic came in, he asked me what I like to do some scouting, part-time scouting. And I said, I certainly would. I said, I tried this sitting out doing nothing for one year, and I don't like it. <laughs> I like going to the ballpark. Yeah. I like the people I see. I like talking to the scouts. It's fun to hear some of the young scouts, some of the questions they'll ask about players like we've been talking today, some of the players in the past, and comparing the changes in the game. And These are people I wouldn't meet, wouldn't have a chance to sit down and talk to you today. I wasn't at the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was a good opportunity. It's proven to be everything I thought it would be and, and a little more. Do I want to do it full time? No, sir. <laughs> anytime you, I'd say to the people listening, anytime you see scouts at a ballpark, um, and mine is pro coverage, I don't do amateur scouting, but you look at these men, and if you heard the the schedule that they keep like i covered 10 teams mm-hmm. that's it 10 teams five, mostly in florida in the southeast southeast yeah goes from new orleans to above atlanta down to miami and it's it's five teams with the braves five with the uh marlins gotcha these other fellows that are doing it full time they may have 30 uh, if you start figuring out 30 teams how are you going to cover 30 teams and they're all over the country they, they have just unbelievable travel schedules and demands and it's it's better for a young man than an old man, Roger. <laughs> well, Woody, we've just enjoyed hearing a lot of your stories about your career and not only as a player but also as a front office executive as well. Uh, just anything else we didn't touch on you feel like? Uh, what, what are you most proud of, of all your years in baseball? I, I, th- I think the thing I'm the most I'm the proudest of is, is just the um, – 
is being in the game for for 50 years and uh, I, I can honestly say that I, I've been very few times that I haven't enjoyed it and, and I hope I've been able to give back a little bit to the game and uh, like I said right now I enjoy talking to people young people in the game and uh, how they can prepare themselves to to get even better and move up the ladder if that's what they're trying to do uh, but I, I think I'm just proud that I went through I got my education at Florida State I completed that I went back and finished it then I went on from the field to the front office and uh, it, it's it's been a nice career it's been good for my family my son scouts for the Giants and has for about 12 years, and he just sent me a text, which is very irritating. He, <laughs> he showed me four World Series rings on his oh, hand because they've had quite a run, these, the Giants, the last few <laughs> years. But uh, so it just, you know, that tells me the family's enjoyed it too, and it's, it, it's, it's been all good. Well, Woody, thank you for joining us today. Roger, thank you, and I must tell you that I enjoy your work, and when I'm at so many of the games, I listen to your broadcast as well as watch the players because I, I learn a lot and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. Well, an incredible conversation with an incredible baseball man, Woody Woodward. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of his stories and insights on the game of baseball. And again, that's a conversation that you can expect to hear coming up on this podcast in episodes to come. Right now, I've got to pack up. I've got to pack up the Suns radio booth just a bit, get some equipment and my scorebook ready to go. And then I'm headed to Jupiter, Florida for spring training. And again, I hope you can listen in the next three Marlins games that will be broadcast Thursday against the New York Mets and also Saturday against the Detroit Tigers, Sunday against the St. Louis Cardinals. All games will start at 1.05 p.m. on the MLB at bat app or on marlins.com or mlb.com. Hope you can listen in, and then we will have an episode next week of the podcast that will include some conversations I've had with some former sons, some friends from spring training. It'll be a lot of fun to see all the different people from Marlins spring training. So that's what next week's episode will focus on. Again, I thank you for listening, and until next time, play the waltz, Roy. I remember the night and the Tennessee waltz. Only you know how much I have lost. Yes, I lost my little darling the night they were playing that beautiful Tennessee.